Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And it's a great pleasure to be with John Finoff. We're speaking in the lead up to the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine annual meeting, which is in San Diego in May 8 to 13, 2017. And one of the highlight sessions will be on exertional leg pain. John's a big expert in that himself, and he'll introduce four other elements of that workshop. John Finoff, thanks for being on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And so let's begin with a clinical case. We've got a 24-year-old basketball player who complains of feeling tightness in her calf. She finds it stops her from playing. It disappears reasonably quickly when she stops running fast. What's the clinical approach to that patient? Number one, find out uh, how long this has been going on, um, whether it occurs with any other particular activities, um, the location and quality of the pain, um, are there any associated neurologic symptoms, um, and so if they have uh, pain at rest and with activity and non-physical examination, they have tenderness to palpation in a, spe- a specific localized area, then I'm going to be looking more at a musculoskeletal uh, problem. If they have uh, no pain at rest, but they have pain during the activity and it's very highly associated with neurologic symptoms and on physical examination, um, I'd be looking for dural tension signs to suggest a more central problem, um, a positive Tunnel sign over a peripheral nerve to see if it's more of a peripheral problem, any loss of reflex, strength, and sensory dermatoma loss. Um, to really identify a, a neurologic problem so you can find things on, on physical examination related to that. And then uh, if it's vascular, um, the most common vascular etiologies are going to be external iliac endofibrosis and popliteal artery entrapment. And in this particular athlete, since the symptoms are distal to the knee, then you'd be thinking more popliteal artery entrapment. And so on physical examination, I would be uh, checking their dorsalis pedis and um, posterior tibial pulses because remember your popliteal artery divides into both of those. So you can have a decrement in those pulses by doing popliteal artery entrapment maneuvers, provocative maneuvers. So the maneuvers are uh, having the knee fully extended and then dorsiflexing the ankle passively or having the person actively plantar flex, both both of those are going to increase the tension through your gastroxoleus complex and result in potential compression of your popliteal artery, in which case you'd have a decrement of the pulse uh, relative to the pulse prior to doing that popliteal artery entrapment maneuver. Um, and I'd also listen to the popliteal uh, fossa with, uh, I'd auscultate it with stethoscope and listen for, for breweries in the area. And if it's more chronic exertional compartment syndrome, then typically uh, at rest, the physical examination will be totally normal. So depending on which of those things you're thinking, uh, that might take you down a different path in terms of the testing that you order. And frequently things occur concomitantly, meaning that you have to order more than one study because you might have more than one process. And if you only treat one, then you you have a failed treatment. And to give a new sort of resident and younger clinician a perspective of the prevalence of these different conditions, what's your take? And I know you're in a specialist clinic, so what do you think the prevalence is in a regular community practice? Uh, so these aren't uh, from a 
vascular and uh, popliteal artery. So, uh, excuse me, from a vascular and chronic exertional compartment syndrome um, standpoint, those are not incredibly common. Um, so they would be more down in your uh, single-digit percentiles. Um, but medial tibial stress syndrome, uh, Achilles tendinopathy, muscle strains, um, stress fractures, those are, are more common. And so you'd start uh, when you start collecting all of these different problems together, then you're probably going to be talking about um, you know teens in terms of the number or percentage of patients that can have exercise-related leg pain if they're participating in a sport that, that would predispose to it, such as distance running um, or jumping, cutting, pivoting sports. And what's the first-line conservative management for chronic exertional compartment syndrome? Well, that's a great question. A lot of it depends on where which compartment is affected. So if you have anterior chronic exertional compartment syndrome, uh, so it's affecting the anterior compartment, um, that is most commonly associated with people who are doing running that involve, and they're a heel striker. So they land and they have to, with initial contact uh, being their heel, they have to eccentric and eccentrically contract the musculature in their anterior compartment, and that puts uh, a huge force in that anterior compartment musculature. And therefore, you increase blood flow to the area, you increase swelling, and that leads to compartment syndrome. So. The um, most common non-operative uh, treatment to employ would be changing their uh, gait pattern such that they have a midfoot to forefoot initial contact during their gait cycle. And therefore, they're loading their posterior compartments, which are superficial and deep, uh, versus their anterior compartment. Um, you know, that can come with its own problems, and so you have to be careful with that anytime you change somebody's gait mechanics. They can start overloading uh, other areas, whether that leads to uh, posterior compartment syndrome or whether that really leads to metatarsalgia or Morton's neuroma or plantar fasciopathy or Achilles tendinopathy. You just you have to be gradual and systematic about uh, shifting somebody's running patterns. But that would be my first-line treatment for non-operative care of an, a person with the most common compartment syndrome, which is anterior chronic exertional compartment syndrome. And I've asked Fran O'Connor this, and my other listeners may have caught it on another podcast, the measurement challenges of compartment syndrome dipping into the posterior compartment as well. Can you guide us on that? Yeah, so it's very interesting. When you're looking at chronic exertional compartment syndrome and the diagnostic studies, uh, the gold standard diagnostic study are uh, pre- and post-exercise compartment pressure testing using a compartment pressure monitor. And um, there are baseline and then one-minute and five-minute post-exercise values. And the most common criteria were described by Pedowitz. And they're a pre-exercise compartment pressure test. Normal should be less than 15. One-minute post-exercise should be less than 30. And five minutes post-exercise should be less than 20. However, um, the original study had some flaws in it, and there have been several studies since that time that have suggested these criteria might need to be slightly altered, um, uh, typically increasing them by two to three millimeters. Now, interestingly, from a technical standpoint, for anybody who does these compartment pressures regularly, just moving your needle slightly can have more than a two or three millimeter change. That can be 
re related to the angle of the needle entry into the muscle. So it changes the hydrostatic pressure within your compartment pressure monitor. Or if you happen to advance or withdraw your needle slightly, that will also change the pressures. So in my opinion and in my practice, most of the people who truly have compartment um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome don't have subtle elevations in their pressures. It's usually uh, high 30s, mid 40s, low 50s, as opposed to, um, you know, 31, where the cutoff is 30. Uh, that person, I would be very hesitant to um, walk down the road towards towards surgical intervention. If they aren't responding to conservative management, which you outlined, including gait retraining, what else do you consider? So, and other conservative measures, of course, you want to look at uh, technique errors. You want to look at their strength uh, and flexibility in the lower extremity. You want to look for any uh, training errors that might have overloaded the system. But if they fail all of that and they're unwilling to change their activities, you know, for instance, if somebody has anterior compartment, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, and they're a runner and they decide, hey, I want to cycle then they may not have any issues ever again in that anterior compartment. But uh, if they want to run and nothing is working from a, a non-interventional standpoint, then there are several different levels of, of intervention that can be, take, that can be uh, performed. So one is injections with botulinum toxin A. There are various types of uh, botulinum toxin A. Um, but you can inject the, that into the musculature and preferably into the motor point, which is the portion of the muscle that is most richly innervated uh, with the nerves. And that causes an irreversible blockade of the neuromuscular junction. So it essentially denervates the muscle in that area. And that is going to lead to a couple of things. One is, is you're not going to contract your muscle as hard so it doesn't have as high a metabolic demand. It's going to lead to some atrophy in the musculature, so you have a decreased volume in the musculature just because of atrophy. And uh, also, botulinum toxin uh, binds to some of the um, uh, pain receptors and uh, reduces your pain perception. And so it it can affect um, not only a reduction in the compartment pressures and a reduction in the volume of the muscle, but also have a direct reduction in, in pain perception. Um, now, the studies that have been done on botulinum toxin injections for chronic exertional compartment syndrome typically have a relatively short follow-up. And uh, while the botulinum toxin um, it, it blocks release of acetylcholine, and it's an irreversible blockage. But your your nerve will have collateral sprouting, and adjacent nerves that are unaffected will also have collateral sprouting. And over about a nine-month time frame, uh, they, new re renervation will occur in the musculature uh, through these collateral sprouts of nerves. And so essentially theoretically people will probably this will probably be reversible and people will start having symptoms again after approximately a nine-month time frame now that being said there have been uh, anecdotal reports and uh, case reports of prolonged reductions of pain despite this uh, eventual renervation of the musculature following a Botox injection so there might be other mechanisms at play here uh, other treatment options um, 
One is a, a technique that I described where um, you can identify the fascia with ultrasound and you can guide an 18-gauge needle down to that area and you fenestrate the fascia. So similar to what people do with fenestrations of the transverse carpal ligament for carpal tunnel syndrome and reporting excellent outcomes with that, uh, you can do the same type of thing from uh, proximal to distal, essentially fenestrating uh, through the superficial aspect of the of the fascia of the anterior compartment and lateral compartment. And uh, that, uh, in the cases that uh, I have reported, um, has done quite well. Now, I don't think that that's going to work for everybody, um, and it, uh, but it's relatively easy. The person is back to full activity in a matter of days, um, and it uh, it doesn't require going into the operating room, and, and all they have is a needle poke, so you just anesthetize them, and you do this fenestration. And the way I explain this to patients is when you fenestrate an area, it's almost like doing a split-thickness skin graft. If you take skin and you poke a bunch of holes in it, it'll stretch out one and a half times larger than it was before. So if you do the same thing in the fascia, it's just allowing, uh, theoretically, the fascia to expand in size and reduce the pressure of the compartment. Uh, more recently, we're using a new technique where we use a three-millimeter meniscotome and we do a very small three millimeter incision and anesthetize the fascia, but guide the meniscotome, a V-shaped cutting blade on the meniscotome down uh, through the skin and we cut the fascia using ultrasound guidance. And so we've studied this in a cadaveric model and demonstrated that yes, indeed, we fully cut the fascia. Um, and uh, we've used this technique also in uh, multiple patients with good outcomes, and it typically takes a week, and they're back to full activity. So these are minimally invasive, what I would consider a microsurgical technique that can be done in an office-based setting uh, that allows people to get back to activities much faster um, and uh, likely with less risk and less uh, associated morbidities. Um, and then the uh, other two surgical options are a fasciotomy where you do an incision, just a surgical incision, um, and cut the fascia, uh, or a fasciectomy. And that's usually reserved for somebody who has chronic exertional compartment syndrome but has failed fasciotomies, and a fasciectomy involves taking out a larger window of the fascia to prevent the fascia from re-scarring down. Um, and uh, hopefully leading to a more successful treatment. Before we leave this topic, John, in the surgery side, there's the fasciotomy, just the splitting, and then the fasciectomy, the window. Is there an argument for going straight to fasciectomy or not? Uh, that, I think that's a great question. Um, the fasciectomy is certainly uh, a more invasive procedure. You have to have a larger incision, and you have to disrupt more tissues. And so uh, it's going to be technically more complicated, and you're uh, likely going to have more potential complications associated with it. And also, you know, we're talking about young athletes, and frequently they're not very interested in having a disfiguring scar in the area. And so all of those, um, I think, are reasons why people use the more standard uh, fasciotomy first, which usually works. Um, and if it and if it doesn't, then going to the more invasive uh, fasciectomy. 
Just hooking back to conservative management, we didn't talk about orthoses. Do you think they have a role? Yeah, I think that anything that can reduce the stress on tissues and therefore reduce the metabolic demand uh, of the tissues um, could be beneficial. Now, that being said, there isn't um, definitive research at this point that shows that either exercise, um, massage, uh, orthotics, none of those have been shown to reduce um, chronic exertional compartment syndrome. But I think all of those are very reasonable things to try. Um, they certainly have almost no risk. And from a theoretic standpoint, they could have some benefit. Thank you, John, for providing that terrific expertise. There's a linked podcast that you can find on the BDSM SoundCloud page with Professor Francis O'Connor on that subject of managing exertional leg pain. And of course, we recommend the BDSM app for keeping up with podcasts on a weekly basis very easily. Mm-hmm.